0: One, two, three, four. Harold P. Scherson is a teacher and administrator, having served on the faculty of both a liberal arts college and school of engineering. His background is in the history of philosophy, but since childhood has sustained an interest in science and technology. His current research interests focus on the philosophy of technology, global philosophy, and technological ethics. His engineering education projects address issues related to the internationalization of higher education, the integration of the liberal arts and engineering, and ethics beyond the codes for engineers.
1: Harold Sherson, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you.
1: So some have predicted that we'll have the singularity as early as 2040 or 2045. And all of this creates a need for a new kind of ethics and philosophy, what we need to underpin society in the future. So what kind of world do you think we'll have then? And what kind of ethics do you think that we'll need in order to govern the new technologies?
2: Well, about the singularity to begin with, I think it's Kind of an enticing formulation of the future that seems to not only rest on a very optimistic view of what technology can do and will do, but also seems to incorporate a sense of redemption or almost a religious tone. And so the uh, the writings of Kurzweil and others who are advocates, of singularity, promise a kind of personal immortality that, you know, will happen when we are sort of liberated from the world, liberated from the material world, liberated from the physical world, and just living in a kind of spiritual way. This reminds me of the kind of structure of the very syncretic religious movements from late antiquity grouped together under the title Gnosticism. So, so Gnosticism kind of portrayed human soul as trapped inside of, you know, a body or a set of material bodies that through some kind of knowledge, some kind of secret message, you would be able to be liberated from and then join this kind of purely a spiritual reality. And so the singularity reminds me of that. It's a tendency which is as old as Gnosticism, I think, and a dream that people have had. It's a pecuniary dream in my mind because, I mean, it's sort of saying that life is something like being in prison. And what we need to do, the future that we ought to want for ourselves, is to get out of jail. This is a profound denial of life, and I guess that's what it is that, well, frankly bothers me, that what we seem to be having is a view that technology can free us from problems that we have, whether these problems are because of climate change, or whether it's population shifts, demands on nature, or something. It's as though nature has been the cause of our problem, and if we could only marshal our strongest self, which is seen in terms of this kind of calculative type of reasoning, then we'll be able to achieve something which is, I guess, utopian, but reminds me of some kind of semi-religious. So this sets everything up, you know, and the need for rethinking a lot of things. I mean, first of all, you asked about sort of the relationship between a new form of ethics and the singularity. But here, I guess I'm guided by the writings of uh, Hans Jonas, Who in his career began as someone who explained Gnosticism in terms of Western metaphysics and Western religious views more clearly and more in relationship to the human condition than anyone, and who then, in the course of his career, took up something like a philosophy of biology or an attempt to understand what he called the phenomenon of life, or what is the particular characteristics of organismic life which recognizes that we are material, physical, living creatures, and not just minds that are trapped inside a body. He kind of took off from his teacher, Heidegger, who had delivered a famous lecture called On the Question of Technology in which Heidegger kind of warned that nature had become just a source of resources for us, commodities, what he called standing reserves, something that had no value other than our ability to exploit it and mine it and use it for our own limited purposes. And so this sort of warning call by Heidegger kind of, I think, inspired Jonas to think through more carefully, well, what do we do? And the argument he makes is that, uh, well, traditional ethics or the ethics that we know in any of the forms that have come to be prominent, whether it's utilitarianism, which is sort of consequentialist ethics, always act in a way so that the outcome of your action will produce the most benefit, or duty ethics, which simply says there are certain things which are good and right and necessary from an ethical point of view, and we must do it regardless of the immediate or perceived consequences, or even the form of so-called character ethics or something like that that Aristotle developed, which saw the humans as striving to live in a way that embraced the good and developed community as a consequence of this kind of embrace of life and connection to a community. All three of these traditions, Jonas argues, happen to be inadequate given the new powers in technology, in scientific technology, or what I call, along with others, technoscience, because technoscience in the first place has increased the power of our actions by orders of magnitude that you can't even really imagine. So, you know, nuclear warfare being the most stunning example of that, that sort of awakened a whole generation to the need for something like engineering ethics or the complexity of machines that only a very, very small group of people have sufficient expertise to even understand how they work, to the fact that the consequences of technology are often irreversible, often don't appear until way in the future, so that you and I, don't even really need to think about them, or at least in terms of ordinary kind of what is my duty or what is my contract to my children or my children's children. Or... But beyond that, you know, we lose any sense of you know reality. And so for reasons like this, we need to somehow embrace a new way of thinking. This will manifest itself in a new ethics, but it has to begin with an understanding of the meaning of life and our relationship to nature and the value of nature. That, of course, you know, brings in all of the ecological concerns about the status of nature in terms of kind of post-human existence where humanity has sort of played itself out and that the next step is something sort of like a cyborg existence or even the singularity. So, so this is a complex of many problems that touches on science and religion and art and history and sociology and everything. I mean, most of us are lost and we need to figure out what is the basis for a comprehensive way of addressing these things. It doesn't mean that there's a single problem or a particular problem there to be solved. It means that we need to somehow rethink how, how we're looking at everything.
1: Yes. And you also have these initiatives that you are involved in, which are truly transdisciplinary. We really have to be multilingual and multilingual, not just of language, uh, embrace the whole world, but embrace all these disciplines, whether it's the science, the art, and technology to get this all talking together. You were a student of Hannah Arendt and more distantly through his writings of Kierkegaard. Tell us what you learned from them, what they imparted to you about what are the important features of the human condition and what's fundamental and important.
2: Yeah, you know, they stayed friends for a long time throughout their life. They did have a a period of alienation from each other because they disagreed pretty much on the events of the Eichmann trial, which rent wrote about famously in a New York article later, published and became an extremely controversial book. But the state friends, and the dialogue between them was very informative, to me at least. And uh, I remember one time they jointly offered a, a seminar on Plato's dialogue of Theotetus. The theme of the dialogue is really epistemology, how is a certain kind of knowledge possible? And they looked at it from radically different kinds of perspectives but nonetheless they had a a very meaningful dialogue and you know i later learned that rent uh, thought that these kinds of dialogues were what her teacher Carl jaspers called a loving struggle and it was what was called for in the face of problems which You know, could be approached from any number of different perspectives or any number of different methodologies. And so you need to somehow learn how to think. You know, I read in a latest collection of things that have come out by her based on the title of an essay or a talk she gave called Thinking Without Bannisters. I mean, you need to learn to think without having sort of the support of a strict methodology. You need to get beyond somehow seeing problems that have a solution that you can arrive at perfectly rationally and open yourself to a kind of exploration, a kind of sharing of perspectives. And that's kind of the big lesson I took from the two of them. It seems to me that that's what's necessary. And what do we call that? I mean, just what philosophy is and what kind of discipline or what kind of thinking is required I think it's a major question, one that interests me and does require, you know, trying to get familiar with all sorts of different discourses. I mean, learning the language of mathematics or learning other natural languages like Chinese or Sanskrit, let alone, you know, the common European languages of Greek as, as the main philosophical languages in our tradition, but also... Learning, you know, to engage with uh, works of art and respond to works of art in ways that are not only just, oh, I like it or I appreciate it or I move, but what what what's really going on? How does this begin to disclose uh, something about the human condition? How do we understand ourselves? And very often the artist comes closest to helping us understand who we are and what we're worried about and what we're concerned about and what we love and what we hate than any kind of, you know, purely rational discourse. So, so I think these are not original ideas of mine, but, but uh, we need to learn to somehow engage in this kind of flow of open, reflective uh, discourse, which doesn't, isn't too you know, rule-bound or too methodologically constrained to exclude possibilities that may lead us to a better sort of understanding.
1: Indeed. And that very simple question, you know, what is philosophy and what is it for? I think that there is a misunderstanding and it's sort of was neglected. Then we see a resurgence, like there has been a resurgence in Stoicism and a lot of the people who are making it like really popular art technologists. So maybe recognizing a lack of that in their field and that we need to have something underpinning. I think it points to a fact that we had kind of drained the philosophy and the ethics out of our educational model. So how do we put that back in and just what is philosophy and why is it important?
2: So you're right about Stoicism. I mean, there's now coming out a series of books which are published, I think, by Princeton University Press. They're well-reviewed for their sort of fidelity to the original text, but they are presenting the Stoic philosophy and some other early philosophies as sources of personal guidance and how do we learn to live well. The university has undergone such an enormous shift. I remember that when I was an undergraduate, the idea that somebody would take courses to prepare for a career outside of a few narrow professional schools, that was unheard of. We never thought about it. You know, we were engaged with, well, history and literature and philosophy and poetry and art, And we could because we thought, well, when we graduate, you know, we'll be able to get a job. We don't need to think about that. But it meant that our education was engaged on a much more open-ended, reflective sort of existential, what am I here for and what am I doing kind of thing. Than students today who are very concerned, I have to have this skill, otherwise I won't be able to get a job. So there are good reasons for both forms of education. I don't mean to reject one in favor of the other. but. It, it is an enormous shift and what is missing, as you pointed out, is a, a sense of how do we think maturely about these kinds of questions that worry us and which, you know, questions of what does it mean to be happy and what is a satisfying life and how am I going to deal with personal adversity. And uh, these filter down to the practical questions of should I get married? Should I have children? You know, or questions of personal identity. You know, what am I? Am I to be understood in this way according to an ethnic tradition or a gender perspective or a vocational question? What kind of, what does it really mean to be human? And uh, everybody is involved in thinking about this, but it seems to me that uh, we're a little bit lost in knowing how to think about it. And so there is a program to reappropriate ancient wisdom in terms of how it might fit into our context today. But I think that's wonderful, but not enough. I think we need to learn something new about how to think through the human condition and it is this kind of interdisciplinary openness that i alluded to but you know i can't really say what it is for a number of years i i taught in an engineering school i can remember my first days in teaching in an engineering school and the culture shock that it was to be there lately i'm teaching in an engineering school in china and so you know by training and background and inclination and everything else double removed from my students, from their values, from their perspective, from the kind of education that they've had, from the mother tongue that they speak. And uh, we do learn from each other. And this kind of dialogue is possible. Uh, we need to open up to you know, a deeper and more you know, genuinely human level of understanding and communication if we're ever going to you know, survive in this world.
1: It is interesting. And I know also you teach as part of the Abu Dhabi program as well, and also Europe, your projects in Europe and the Memoir de l'Avenir project. But I'm wondering if you find with your international colleagues, I certainly have noticed, like say with Mandarin and Chinese languages, that there's a certain kind of natural philosophical perspective. or Like sometimes these concepts are embedded within the language that one would have access to without even realizing that it's a philosophical perspective. It just language prepares the mind.
2: Well, I agree very much, and uh, I've struggled for a bunch of years to try to learn Chinese and to work with Chinese colleagues, and uh, I've just been amazed at, you know, how language uh, is able to recharacterize things. This is an anecdote which I think says something, but shortly after I I finished my PhD dissertation, which was on Kierkegaard, but I wrote it from kind of the standpoint of the Heideggerian critique of Kierkegaard, and I had read a lot of Heidegger, and Heidegger kept talking about his uh, Eastern philosophy in particular and Taoism and so on. But at that point, I had never read anything of that. And when I was busy doing my dissertation, I didn't have time to pause and look at it. But a year or so after I was done and I felt free, I thought, you know, I'm going to look into this and see what Heidegger was getting about. My first reaction was, I don't see any of the Heideggerian ideas here. And so I thought, maybe it's a translation issue. And so I bought another translation (laughs) arbitrarily. And when I read it, It was so different from the first that I could hardly believe that I was reading the same text. And, you know, it was in a very practical way, I realized how it is that, that translation from languages that have a rich and long historical tradition and philosophical outlook and everything else into another language with a different kind of tradition. You know, we can't just do that. And I'm so concerned about the growing belief in machine language translations. I mean, for business, it is imperative, I guess, but we're losing something. We're changing something. I had a student some years ago. I was an outside reader for a PhD student at Monash University in Australia, and she did her dissertation. dissertation on the use of English as the global language of business and had many, many examples where contracts and various agreements were made in English where the parties absolutely did not understand each other. They completely assumed they were in agreement, but they weren't because of the different ways in which they understood English. So these were people who were operating in English from their own languages were different, you know, German and Chinese or something like that, but dealing in English. So uh, it only, you know, adds to my sense that if we're going to understand something like the human condition, and from that point of view or from that perspective, the crucial and crisis problems that are facing humanity, we need to really learn to listen to traditions quite different than our own. As you mentioned, I worked in Abu Dhabi for a while when NYU set up their campus there. And it was my first time spending extended time in that part of the world and getting to know people and sort of, in many ways, falling in love with aspects of the culture In other ways being completely baffled by it. And I was reminded of a book that I read many years ago about sort of the problem of number of Europeans like Walter Benjamin and Shem Sholem and so on called The Problem of Athens and Jerusalem. You know, sort of Christianity bringing together sort of Greek Neoplatonism with Hebrew thought. And uh, this book simply put it in terms of the different languages and the ability to express common ideas that is repeated over and over again, whether it's Wendy Doniger, a famous scholar of Hinduism, writing about the Hindus in a way that gets her book banished in India, because uh, she's understood Hinduism in a way that many locals did not or whether it's the way in which New Testament scholars read the Old Testament, or whether it's Heidegger reading or trying to read Chinese and Japanese texts. I mean, over and over again, we see grand ideas based on, you know, possibly fundamental misunderstandings coming to fore. Well, you know, that's history and that's civilization. But in a world which is so small now and so fast, you know, deal with these kinds of things. I mean, misunderstandings can happen and have consequences, Practically in the blink of an eye
1: Indeed there's music in language there's the meaning and then there's the music it's not just pure data and that's not even mentioning the other nonverbal communication that of mm-hmm. course is so open to interpretation and so yeah it's just walking that tight wire to under to speak to all and in one language <laughs> that's the great challenge.
0: technology is rapidly changing, despite whether humans can keep up with it or not. As is discussed in this interview with Harold P. Schurson, these rapid changes call for a more interdisciplinary approach to technology and its effect on our society. Sherson notes that we have lost how to think about knowledge and that the current challenge is to find a new way to think about the human condition. My name is Monica Baker, and I'm an associate podcast producer for The Creative Process. I'm in my final semester of a master's degree in cultural studies, with an emphasis in media studies at Claremont Graduate University. My research investigates the unique crossroads between art, film, and media with emerging technologies and how these associate with identity, such as gender or femininity. How have our definitions of gender roles, identity, and humanism changed in this newfound technological revolution of AI and augmented reality? With the expansion of online presence, are virtual spaces the new local coffee shop or public park? I encourage listeners to ask themselves, have we always been finding new ways to define ourselves as human? Or has technology changed how we previously conceived of what makes us, us? The internet has changed how we communicate. And Sherson notes that humanity needs a new form of ethics for not only navigating technology and virtual spaces, but also with each other. This caused me to think about our relationship with technology. Just because our tech has advanced to where we now have cell phones, the internet, and artificial intelligence, that doesn't mean that humanity has advanced as well. I love and I am fascinated by technology, but there's no denying that we still struggle to communicate with each other, settle conflicts peacefully, and our technological advances don't necessarily correlate with a greater code of ethics or morals. I can't help but question if humanity will ever catch up to our technological counterparts, and why conversations about a technology's long-term effects don't take place before or during its construction. Sherson and Mia discussed the concept of technology as a source for environmental support, and whether it can create a more utopian and inclusive future through the power of innovation. Sherson feels that's too idealistic a narrative to place on technology. So perhaps technology can only be our salvation if we take the time to communicate with each other and put in the work. And now back to the interview. We're talking about universities and how you've noticed a lot of students are very concerned about getting a specific skill so that they can move to a specific job and how we need to learn a new way of taking in knowledge, a new way to think about the human condition. Do you see universities finding ways to implement that, particularly in STEM programs? And do you feel that technology is moving too quickly for universities to implement that type of new epistemology into these STEM programs?
2: I've thought about this a lot. And the answer to part one of your question, do I think universities are up to the task? And the answer is, I think there are some wonderful instances where they are. And there are also situations where it's just not happening at all. I think the controversy in the United States over U.S. World News Report, some of the universities saying, you we're not going to be part of that anymore is indicative of this kind of divided idea about how you assess what a valuable university education is. So I think that the humanities have enthusiastically embraced technology in ways that are sort of unaware of what they're courting. I remember when I left teaching in the liberal arts tradition and went to teach in an engineering school, I was astonished with the fact that My engineering colleagues were much slower to embrace technology in the classroom than humanists were. And uh, I thought that things like the Perseus Project, which is collecting and digitizing texts and saving and sort of opening up to people that don't live next door to a major library or archives and can't travel, giving so many opportunities. And so, you know, humanists have, uh, for very, very good reason, embraced this kind of technology because it simply gives us access to the resources which are vital to our research and understanding and the source of so much. On the other hand, I think that this embrace has gone a little bit too far. The idea of the digital humanities somehow, in some cases, replacing more traditional ways of reading. I look at some of the kinds of specializations within literature departments that to sort of leave the the graduate with such a narrow path that they've gone down and maybe been able to drill down much more deeply. But, you know, being really unaware of so many things. This conference, where this summer I'm going to a conference which is dedicated this very question of what is the significance of the digital humanities and how is this transforming knowledge and how is this transforming our relationship to the past and the future? And it means that, that everything is sort of available, but everything is being mediated through technology and the form of the technology is characterizing it in certain ways. It's also allowed for certain kinds of enhanced research. I mean, I just love the capabilities I have online to come up with so much information and correlate it and index it and cut through the sort of advanced databases. so you don't need to do anything except, you know, oh, didn't I once upon a time write about this? And lo and behold, there's a paragraph you wrote six years ago. So this is wonderful, and I I love it. But on the other hand, I just think that it's altering our perspective. Something that I was thinking about before when we were talking about the richness of language, I learned at one point that W.H. Auden did some teaching, and he liked to teach Dante, and he taught Dante to English speaking students exclusively, but he had them read Dante aloud in Italian, because he says, You don't get it without the music and the sound and the voice of it. So I'm just afraid that the digitization of knowledge is narrowing at the same time, deepening what we're doing and where that's bound to lead. I mean, it's going to produce many wonderful things, of course, but it's also going to leave behind some things, which maybe in retrospect, we will wish that we hadn't.
0: You mentioned earlier how exciting it is that we have this massive database of the internet how do you feel our ethics have changed or must change with more amorphous technologies like the internet, like big data, things that aren't tactile, we can't really see or touch them, but they're there?
2: Well, last week in my class in China, we were touching on AI ethics, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. ethics. And I asked the students as an opening kind of question, what do you think you know might be necessary in order to have a, a, an ethics which addresses a particular powers of AI and how it's changing things and so on. And the first student that spoke said, well, you know, we're all so busy as students and we're working so hard that now we use chatbots to uh, write many of our essays to avoid the tedium of having to write out something. We know the concept and so the work of writing it out, that's wasted time in a sense. And so then I said, well, does this raise any sense about authorship or, you know, who's responsible for the words or things like this? I pointed out that well-established science journals, such as Nature, were having a problem now because they were getting submissions that were written by chatbots. And the author didn't try to hide this. I mean, it wasn't, you know, pretending. He said, well, here's the data we collected. Here are the photographs from the lab and, you know, that kind of information. Here's all of the information. Now the chatbot writes a little summation of the information we're giving. And from their point of view, that is, the authors who are no longer authors, I guess, they thought that was fine. And so I presented this to the student. I said, well, do you think that's fine? And, well, they had never thought about that. And they've said, no, we don't think it's fine. Well, what should you do? And, well, how do you regulate? It? What point is using this kind of technology somehow taking away from the human? And, well, they didn't know. And, frankly, I'm not sure either, and I don't think anybody does. But that's just simple, concrete example of how it is that technology creates dilemmas, which, until they happen... Nobody would imagine them. I think you were a little surprised to hear that example from Nature magazine. I was certainly astonished that anybody at this stage was using chat AI to write scientific articles.
1: Yes. I th- And at that level, especially, I mean, that's a reputed journal. And I much prefer to this term artificial intelligence, assistive intelligence and technology used to serve the purposes of people, not the technologists. But I have experimented with that just to see a chat bot to write a poem about an eagle. And it wrote what I thought was good, but it, it was very, it was just like Tennyson's The Eagle mixed up. It was just, it was just like a cut up technique of that. And I suppose, yeah, it makes you wonder: Does it matter? You know, there are other questions. Would it matter if you had, you know, robot athletes? Would it? Does it matter? At what point? Because we're at this. You asked this important question: and are children cyborgs? So we're looking into the future where we're, in a sense, no longer human.
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, Donna Haraway's famous essay, you know, raises powerful gender issues associated with this, but. The question, the way you put it, and I put it the same way, is does it matter? Well, what counts is what matters or not. Is it efficiency? Is it getting more work done more quickly? Is that what matters and that's better? Is it, you know, having more excitement on the athletic field that matters? Or is it being able to have everybody participate? What criteria decides what's important or what matters? Or what, in terms of classical, you know, Greek ideas, what is the good? What is the good that we're trying to embrace? And until we have a good idea of the good, I'm not sure that we can actually answer questions like, does it matter or not?
0: What are your thoughts on the coders and engineers that build these systems that really filter, contain, and search so many different aspects of our public and private lives?
2: Yeah, this is a wonderful question. Engineers really need to be at the center of this discussion. And engineers, many of them don't see themselves as being there. And many of the rest of us don't see engineers as being there. We think of engineers as having a set of skills and sort of carrying out sort of simple technological design work and not much more. So I always begin by saying, well, what do we mean by engineering? Uh, And uh, there was an organization that was developed at MIT called the CDIO Initiative. CDIO stands for the four components of what engineering is, conceiving, C, designing, D, implementing, bringing out, and operating, which means sort of taking care of things. And so, you know, sort of the initial conceptualization of what is the good or what we want or what the future should be like is the first step of engineering. Then converting that into a design, which means how do we take an idea and make it into something that has the potential of being realized in a material context as a device or a gadget or a machine or a tool or something like that. And then the process of implementing it, which really means bringing it to market these days, you make money off it without necessarily thinking about, you know, what is the impact on society or what is the good of society? I mean, so we have genetically engineered crops. Everybody thought, well, that's great because we can have such a higher yield and everything like that. But what? is the ultimate meaning of that in terms of agricultural society? And how does this work? Is it fine in Nebraska, but not fine in in Northern India? I mean, how do we think these things through? So implementation and then operation means taking care of it. I mean, so if engineers are building the world and increasingly, and this is not a new idea, I remember in the human condition, Rent already wrote about this, that we're living in a world that's primarily what we ourselves have made. We're not living in a natural world anymore. When Bill McKibben in his book writes The End of Nature, you know, the title was shocking to many people. But actually, of course, even when we're walking in beautiful parks, we're not in nature. We're in a world that has been created by technology according to somebody's idea. So we have the built world and engineers need to take care of it. The hardest part, according to me, is on the design level. Because how in the process of design do you address the issue of the responsibility of engineers for creating the world that we're going to live in. When you're designing something, and of course, you know, the epistemology of of designing and understanding the use of design and so on is a tremendous undertaking, but engineers need to be part of this. I like to give talks where I say engineering is really a branch of the humanities. Why? Because, I mean, engineers are making the world that we live in and they're taking care of the world that we live in and designing the world where we're going to have options and opportunities. That's, you know, that's practical humanities, if nothing else. This is happening at some universities, at my own university, NYU. And the particular history of NYU is it didn't, it had an engineering school and then it it dropped it because it couldn't afford it. And then engineering became more important. And so it brought it back and merged it back into the school. But in so doing, they wanted to figure out, well, how do we have significant, meaningful discourse with the medical school and the law school and the humanities schools and the social work school and the fine arts school and the engineers. And uh, they're doing this in terms of cross appointments and a lot of creative things like this in order just to, to get the same people in the same room or the different people, I mean, the engineers and the doctors and the artists in the same room working together, because then that ought to spawn some ideas. And so, so this kind of multiplicity of perspective and kind of different languages or different methodologies have to be, you know, brought together. It was said that, At the Bell Telephone Labs years ago, that's where the transistor was invented, and so it's sort of the beginning place, the war ground for electronic technology. They said that the way they organized it was that they deliberately put people in offices that have different disciplines, like a chemist next to an electrical engineer why because they thought well they're going to come out of their office and they're going to have coffee together and they're going to talk and some new ideas are going to happen we're going to they're going to understand each other's perspectives so on a larger scale i think universities need to do that nyu for one i think is very much trying to do that
1: Yes, as you rightly identified, we are, even when we think we're out in nature, in parks, we are living in these man-made environments. And as I was astonished to understand that now man-made objects now outweigh living organisms on the planet, which is sort of hard to take in. But when you think about all the roads and the buildings and everything that we've done, so how do we adjust that balance to build? As you say, engineers have to be a part of it. Philosophers, artists have to be a part of it to build the future that we want, not just, I think we've been in the last 100 years or or more, you know, the pursuit of novelty, building things because we can. But then we have to think about maybe we should build less and build smartly as we address the important questions. We're in like a critical decade when we think about the carbon we have in the atmosphere, scaling that back, getting to net zero, And just the rapid adaptation that needs to take place, whether it's transport or energy or housing and education and addressing all those things like heat waves and droughts and water scarcity, it goes on and on. So as you address those questions, how do we bring that kind of humanistic thinking into redesigning the world?
2: Well, I think, you know, we have to create the opportunity for these kinds of cross-disciplinary discussions, and we need to suspend the idea of of deliverables. I mean, every time you want to get a grant or have a conference or something, the funding agency wants to know, well, what's the deliverable? What are we going to get out of this that will have some practical utility? And I think maybe it's too soon to always insist on that. We need to say, well, we're just going to put people together from diverse perspectives who are going to be sincere about this and let their thinking go and so on. Time is short. So is there any reason to be optimistic? That's the question because what's of concern to me, I read a book recently called After Geoengineering. It's by somebody named Polly Buck. And she says, well, here's what I'm worried about is that everybody thinks that What you're going to do is put a giant shield in the sky to keep the sun from heating us up too much or something like this. is a bad idea. But at some point, when the crisis becomes too great, there's going to be less reflection about these kinds of solutions and people are going to start adapting them out of belief that the only hope we have is through some kind of strong technological solution. And I think that what we need to do while we have time, and hopefully, you know, some sort of providential force will give us enough time, get away from this idea that the solution has to be found in terms of immediate, practical, you know, things and sort of open up to the to grander subject. How do we understand what it is we're looking for? I mean, you began this question by saying, well, how do we, you know, design for what we want? And I'm going to turn it back to you and say, but how do we know what we want? We want happiness. Happiness. We want stability. We want health. We want to think our families have a future. I have grandchildren. I very often think, what kind of world are they inheriting?
1: Exactly. I mean, I'm obviously I'm skeptical about. We've spoken to geoengineers, some who are doing really ambitious projects like regreening the deserts. I'm sure you've heard about some of those projects in Abu Dhabi. And so it makes you think that like way back when, I guess the deserts weren't all desert, you know. So at some stage was that a Part of something that was kind of engineered because we had lived through an ice age. I don't know. But we have to act responsibly. Tell me a little bit more about Memoir de l'Avenir, Memory of the Future, this project, which I hope the creative process can contribute to as well, because I so much like the idea that the future has a, some resonance of the past. That's like literally. But I do feel like we rest upon the dreams of our ancestors. We're living in a present that they may have dreamt of or they may have prepared us for. So tell us a little bit more about it.
2: Well, this is a small gallery and. In- Paris. And its mission really is to get artists involved in some of these larger questions. And uh, very often, the openings involve performance pieces or maybe talks. The catalogs, which are published usually online, there was an exhibit back in the fall. An artist was doing sculpture in a very kind of humanistic way, reminiscent of Rodin, maybe be, but trying to deal with questions of the human condition and address these in terms of many of the questions that we've been talking about. So I was asked to, to write something about this, which I did at the opening. We had an interpretive dance was related to it. And the idea is sort of how does past and the future come together? We're living between past and future, and we're kind of on a tightrope. And there's you know, forces that are trying to knock us off from our precarious balance. And we need to somehow see the future and remember the past in the same breath and hope that we can have a stability to chart a path that's going forward.
1: And so on that note, you know, as you think about the teachers that were important to you and you reflect on the future and education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember?
2: So I, when I think about this, I, I think in terms of my grandchildren. And I have a granddaughter who's just going into high school now, and she is filled with idealistic thoughts. She's optimistic. She's a person who is both in love with art and in love with science. She's vivacious and has many friends. And just everything about her seems like life is beautiful, and I'm going to be able to do this and that. And of course, when I talk to her, I do everything I can to encourage this kind of openness and optimism and belief in herself and her ability to do worthwhile things and not to be too concerned about is she going to be able to have a job with enough income to to be where she wants to be. She's not thinking on those levels. And so how it is to perpetuate and strengthen that kind of spirit and hope that it can be validated by giving this generation the opportunity to do things. Because I believe that if she and and people who think and feel like her were really given opportunity to be influential and to do things. that that would have a, a tremendous shift in the way the world is going. She doesn't think in terms of orderly profits. She thinks in terms of human happiness and human good and human fairness and the beauty of nature, and all of these things just naturally come together in her head. And so that's what I think we need to do. I think the universities can play a part, schools play a part, but uh, there has to be kind of a utter general sense that this is how we should conceive the future. And, uh, you know, galleries, podcasts, books, uh, newspapers, universities, schools, every kind of institution uh, needs to offer something to help this.
1: Indeed. How do we empower all citizens so that they feel that their voice is heard and it is valued? Well, thank you, Harold Scherson, for your insights into philosophy, technology, science, ethics, and the humanities, and for helping us understand what we value, where we're going, and to consider possible outcomes for what we should do to ensure positive and more equitable futures. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet podcast and the
0: creative process.
2: Thank you. It's been a great enjoyment.
0: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michelsky Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Monica Baker, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer for this episode was Monica Baker. The digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.